May the words of my lips and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I've been working through a book recently that has given me a window into one of the, the people that I admired the most growing up. Um, in 2009, we were given an incredible window into the mind or maybe even the soul of one of the greatest athletes of all times. The most dominant player of the 80s and 90s, Michael Jeffrey Jordan. Nearly every kid in my school had that Air Jordan poster where he leapt from the free throw line. He had his arm extended. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Now people nodding their heads. Good. Um, even the marginal sports fan knows the story of Michael Jordan, who 20 years later um, after his retirement um, and a lifetime for a lot of the players in the NBA is still one of the most recognizable players in all of sports. The player who got cut from his high school team to go on to be a Hall of Famer, a story that many have seen as perseverance and dedication all the way to six NBA championships, 14 all-star appearances, two Olympic gold medals, the highest scoring average in the history of the sport, I think like nine all-NBA teams. He is the greatest player of all time. I know there's some debate about that, but that's another conversation. <laughs> so if I were to ask you what you would expect Michael J. Jordan to be like as a person, I'm curious how you would answer. I mean, he looked like a nice person in that great movie Space Jam. And I suspect that most of us would assume that he has a great sense of pride and accomplishment and satisfaction. We might say his cup runneth over. What more would there be left to accomplish? But when he took the stage in 2009 to receive the greatest honor in sports to be inducted into the Hall of Fame in his silver suit and signature hoop earring. His speech was anything but normal. He even started out, he said, I thought I'd just get up and say thank you, but he couldn't do it. He took the stage for just over 23 minutes, complaining about all the people who'd criticized his career. He lambasted his college coach, Dean Smith, for a comment in 1981 about how Jordan was not a promising freshman. I mean, harboring those feelings for over 30 years. He invited Leroy Smith to the ceremony, the person who Jordan said was chosen when he was cut in high school. And he actually wasn't cut. They were trying out for one spot on the team. Smith was a foot taller. They were freshmen applying for one spot on a, on a team, but Jordan's told himself he was cut, this kind of feeling, this, this being uh, criticized. He criticized Jerry Krause, the general manager for the Bulls, for a comment in 1997 where Krause said organizations won championships, not players. He talked about kicking his rival coach, Pat Riley, out of a hotel room because Jordan wanted the room more, and he had that kind of power. 
What he did, I think he was hoping to be inspirational, but what he really did was he exposed the world to his incredible wounded ethos, which is an insight into his soul and is actually rather sad that the greatest player of all time carries so much anger and resentment towards others that he can't even enjoy the crowning moment of his career. So driven to win, so fueled by anger and any perceived slight. And yes, he became great at winning. But as we look in, we know that the feelings of bitterness and resentment and acrimony are not the virtues that we want to hold up for an enlightened life. I'd even argue that, that many of us want to make it in some profound way, whatever that means, so that our own feelings of unworthiness, our own bitterness, and our own doubt. To have those feelings eradicated from our own personal understanding of self. I'm curious about Jordan's life. I'm mostly curious to know if his drive to win was fueled by his own resentment towards those who hadn't recognized his gifts and talents or if the desire to win was a byproduct of those feelings. Regardless, his speech is a cautionary tale that even the achievement of everything we set our hearts to do might not cultivate us to be the people that God calls us to be. Forgiving, loving, compassionate, hopeful, humble, Today's gospel, I think it's helpful to parse it into two parts. Um, the, the first part is about, um, what it means to deal with conflict. And then we kind of get to this, the, the more well-known verses in our tradition about what it is that we bind here on earth is what we bind in heaven and that image of two or three gathering in God's name. I see those is some way kind of casting this vision for what it means to be in a relationship, which conflict's a part of that. And this is what we do as social human beings. We seek out relationships. We seek out community. And it's through, it's through that community and, and through that we become the body of Christ. A couple of years ago, the parents of, of one of our kids' friends, one of Anna and I, our kids' friends, had this conversation. They were seeking they were seeking a new church, and they used this language to me. They said, we're looking for the best church in town. <laughs> and I, I felt myself at a crossroads, and maybe it's from this reflection on, 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 on reading about Jordan's life that it, this has come back up. Because I, I like this couple a lot, and I really want to welcome them into Christian community at St. Stephen's. And I, and I found myself wanting my church to be the best. And it wasn't on their list. <laughs> Maybe today I'm more grateful for that. As I grow to reflect on my own ego and what it means as people when we mix our goals with that desire to be, to be better. And it creeps, it creeps, into, it creeps into our thinking that that desire to win at any cost. And I've shifted, not on St. Stephen's, but I've, I've shifted my thinking on the world recently. 
And I acknowledge that our, I acknowledge that our world is messy. I think we know that. I think it's always been messy. And, and, maybe, and maybe today it's a little bit messier here than it was 10 years ago. But it's probably not as messy as it was 50 years ago. But I've shifted in the sense that maybe that's all just semantics and maybe it doesn't matter as much as we think it should. Maybe it doesn't matter as much as we think it should. I wonder if my own foolish idealism has led me to believe that, it, that at one time that our own striving for perfection means that we can mold our external existence and the existence of other lives into the perfect vision that we hope to be for our reality in life. Does that make sense that we have the capacity to shape this world into what we believe it should be? The problem is, is look at our discourse. At least politically is a good place to start. We're so stinking idealistic that our parties are so committed to winning with absolutely no compromise and almost are all universally committed to winning at no cost or at all costs. This belief that permeates all ideologies that only in winning can victory be attained. It impacts our politics. It impacts our school systems. It can impact our church communities. We're watching division all across different denominations. It's happened in our denomination. It's the weird, it certainly impacts the weird ritual that caps, captivates most of our attention on Saturdays. I need to be clear, I finished writing this sermon before the evening games took place. But this, I think where I've arrived is what if the world is meant to be broken? And I don't mean this, I mean that this is what the cost of sin, this is what it means to be broken people, this is, this is the human condition. And, and, and the human condition means that we can't fix it. That's God's work. That's God's work to bring about the kingdom of heaven. But instead, it's through our compassion, it's through our love, it's, it's through our humility, it's through our care for, for another that we offer, we offer the world and we offer each other an alternative vision, an alternative vision for what people can see their lives as or what God desires their life to be. Because what my childhood basketball hero has shown me is, is that what we bind here in our own soul, resentment, striving, that doesn't change our, our eternal existence. Those 23 minutes in 2009 opened us up to see the lack of spiritual death and the ultimate cost of pitting ourselves against each other in our foolish attempt to get everything right to be the best. I mean, there's some incredible wisdom in our epistle. Owe no one anything except for love. So if you're thinking about what it means to be relationship and all these transactions and, 
in this, I mean, that's the way our, our system and our, our, our relationships are built up. Oh, no, no one anything except for love. It's a reminder that we don't win if our neighbors lose. The only in some game is how we care for each other. What we bind here on earth will be bound in heaven. What is it that we're working to build up? Our sense of worth or pride or accomplishment or how we care for each other the stranger, the neighbor, those who are hurting each other. What is it you're cultivating? And what are you being invited to discern so that you can be the person that God has called you to be? Where have we put our priorities? Where are we trying to win? What really matters? Amen. Amen.